So let me pray for us now and let's um, consider our passage together. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Please help me to speak as speaking the very words of God. And Father, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might live lives worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know the story so far, we were left with a cliffhanger, weren't we? Steve left you last week. Uh, Paul's about to, to be lynched. It's a messy world, isn't it? A messy world? Yep. You know, just all the things that are happening in our world today. Um, how do we hang on to our faith in the Lord Jesus in the midst of a messy world? Keep coming, reminding yourselves of what, and this is the key word, what is true. And that's what will that's what'll come out a bit today. Now the beauty of the, the record in uh, Luke's record in Acts is that Luke's world was very messy. You had the, the lovely Roman overlords, they were so sweet. You've got the highly strung Jews. Um, you've got the, the coming of the Messiah who they murdered and he rose again from the dead. And you've got the early church adjusting to this new age. It's a time of... Uh, it's, it's changing massively. And Luke has recorded how the Lord Jesus was enabling his church to adjust to this coming. That's what, as we read through Acts, we see this transition taking place. See, the temple is no longer the centre of, of the whole operation. They're no longer waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah has come. But not as the Jewish people had expected. And so now for the Jewish Christians, they've had 2,000 years of heritage. They need to adjust to God's bigger plan. All of a sudden, the Samaritans are not on the outer. How can this be? You know, that lot. Um, what? The Gentiles, you must be joking. No, Gentiles are now accepted into God's family too. And it's, they're part of the true Israel. And without becoming Jews first. So that's how Luke's narrative in Acts is developing. Hope you can see that as you've been studying it. Um, what we're seeing is God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. The blessing is coming to the nations. And the Lord Jesus is building his church, the true Israel. Now, the Jewish Christians found it really easy to adjust, didn't they? No, they didn't. They, there's shock value along the way, you know. It's sort of a, um, and so we you remember back in Acts 15 where they resolved, yes, it's okay. The Gentiles are allowed in. But God did a lot to get that, you know, he had to do a lot with, with Peter, the three visions and all that. And then Peter recounting that experience over and over, giving his testimony, showing what the Lord Jesus had has in mind, that he is including all the nations. And so the Lord is building his church and spread, the message is spreading to all the nations. Now, if it's hard for the Jewish Christians to adjust, how about the Jews themselves? And we know what a uh, massive change it was for Paul, Saul, initially. What did it take for him to change? 
the Damascus Road, which is what we're going to be looking at again today from his point of view, which is very nice to have a story from his point of view, having had it back from uh, an onlooker's point of view back in chapter 9. But uh, since he's been through that, he's, there's lots been happening in Paul's life right up to where we are now. He's had two missionary journeys, um, always starting with the Jews, offering the, the gospel to them and then going to the Gentiles. And now he's returning to Jerusalem with, um, and he's been toughened up ahead of time. It's going to be tough. He gets, everywhere he goes, he's got, you know, you're going to be smashed there, pal. Yeah. Yep. Everywhere he goes. So he's been mentally got ready for being there. And so now, as we see, he has come and he's starting to suffer. Just going to take a little aside for a moment and ask, have you ever wondered why Jesus chose Paul? Ever thought about that? Interesting question. Ever thought? Well, let's think through some things. And all of them are positive. His background. He's the most unlikely person to change course. Correct? That's the way he's pictured. He's stridently anti-Christian to the point of putting people to death, including uh, Stephen, as we know. And he himself says so in today's talk. Um, he's a strong Jewish heritage, how he grew up. He would have had training in the, in the Pharisees. So as the Lord looks at uh, Saul, he would say, well, he's, he's not ignorant of the scriptures. That is going to be very important. What sort of temperament has he got? Well, he's a rocky choleric, if you will. He's that... <coughs> Sorry. He's the kind of a man of principle not easily swayed away from principle. And that comes out later when he has a little discussion with Barnabas. But he says the principle is, you know, the, um, uh, the, the somebody who's walked away from us, which is what Mark did, the principle is, no, nah, he can't come. Barnabas, who's much more tender-hearted, more is, says, no, he, he should be able to come. So they actually split on that. So temperamentally, you've got a very tough guy in the makeup, in his temperament of, uh, of Saul. He's also got a heritage in two worlds. He is both strongly Jewish, but he is also Roman. He's got Greek, um, and because growing up where he did. So he's got a language ability. He's also had training in rhetoric. Um, the ability to, uh, when making presentations of speeches, to adjust his message to the background of those he's speaking to. We're going to see that. He's also a very deep thinker. All right. We'll look at more of the advantage of him being chosen later on. So back to our passage. Today we see Jesus enabling Paul, now Paul, in his testimony... How he, and how he communicates the gospel in that setting. And there's some lessons for us to learn about how to do that for ourselves in our sharing of our own testimony. So when we last left the story, Paul was about to be lynched by an angry mob, but rescued just in time by the Roman commanders and soldiers. He's probably a bit bashed up, no doubt bleeding a bit. So if you have your Bibles open with me to chapter 21, verse 37, I'm actually going to incorporate the reading into the talk so because it's a long reading so we're just going to meld the two together so verse 30 chapter verse 37 
As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? That's a a gracious way of putting it. He didn't demand it. He's asking for permission to actually speak to him. That's to be noted. Note Paul's diplomacy. He has a right respect for governing authorities. The commander is this is the, the one over the whole garrison there. He's the one in charge. And the garrison has housing is right next to the temple. Just above it actually. Do you speak Greek? The the commander replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Now, this Egyptian who'd started a rebellion, he was still at large. He managed to get away. A lot of his followers didn't. But Paul's fluent Greek and speaking to him caught the commanders totally off guard. Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. That's a second request. Once again, it's a gracious request, isn't it? But what has he got to back that request? Well, where you came from in those days was important. You know, that's true with Jesus. You know, Jesus came from... Oh, Nazareth. You've got to be kidding, right? We have uh, other lines in Gippsland about other towns we might use... um, same sort of thinking you know it's a bit of a put down off you came from such and such but if you came from a a very well ordered a place like Tarsus a a very then you actually it, it added to your kudos so Paul says it's not an arrogant request can I speak to them it's a little bit like if you're speaking to a friend you're chatting with somebody, you just sense an opportunity. One of the things you can do is you can ask permission. Very important to do. Can I tell you how I became a Christian? Or are you not interested? Now, I always give, you can give the other the opt-out. I think I'll take the not interested factor. Thank you. Right, gave the opportunity. I was up with my brother recently, um, who's, uh, we weren't sure, how, I'm not sure how long he's got to go. He's on oxygen, he's a smoker. Comes off the oxygen, goes over, over and has a fag, comes back, you know. And I said to him, look, I'd lost my phone on the way up to, to Darwin where he lives and I thought I, I haven't got a Bible. You know, I said to him while we were out in his little workshop where he has his smoke, um, have, you, have you got a Bible here? And he said, what do you want a Bible for? And I said, um, oh, just to, um, to I left, left, lost my phone and I haven't got one and so I can read it and I'll, I'll read some to you if you want. He said, no. But I gave him the opportunity. And he said, no, in quite a firm way, you know. So, all right. But we ask permission. Very important. All right. We need to show consideration for our audience. So, verse 40, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps. These were steps just leading into the um, the, the uh, soldiers auditorium um, he was and the crowd had followed them up you know yelling and screaming at, at them so Paul was able to stand on the steps and he motioned to the crowd with his hand when they were silent he said to them in Aramaic brothers and fathers listen now to my defense verse 1 of chapter 22 what was the reaction to that 
When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. What does that tell you about Paul's thinking? He's being considerate, isn't he? He could have spoken a, a superior Greek language, but it would have been talking down to them. He's coming down to their level and not showing off, if you will. He's being considerate. Now he's now going to give them his testimony of how the Lord Jesus had changed his whole life. Defending why he is now a follower of the way, which is, was the term that was used to describe this particular sect. Now, do you know what the beauty of hearing a testimony is? A personal testimony? What's the, what's the strength in it? When somebody gives you their testimony, they're sharing deep personal information, important information to the, to the one giving the testimony, and they're actually exposing their heart to the listener. Testimonies are very, very powerful. And it's helpful if you've got, in your own um, life, you've thought through, how would I share my testimony with somebody? I think I've shared my testimony with you before when I first started coming here. So I won't go through it now. We haven't got the time. But here goes Paul with his story. To those who are living now in the heart of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. So we get the setting. It's important to have the setting here. Here we've got Jews in Jerusalem, the very heart of Judaism. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But I was brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, a well-known person already mentioned back in uh, uh, earlier in Acts, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. What's Paul doing? Well, he's quick to show how much he has in common with his audience. Very handy to, you know, when you're dealing, sharing your testimony with somebody, that you've got common ground, which is exactly what he's doing, particularly Jewish ground. He wants to show how Jewish he is so that they don't just reject him off out of hand. It also enables his hearers to relate to what he's experienced. Because once you know you're, you can get inside the speaker's shoes and see how you travel and how you would respond to what he is going to go through or what he's going to explain. This is what he says. I was just as zealous for God as any of you today. I persecuted the followers of this way to the death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. And as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I've got witnesses. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. He's relating to them. He is as earnest as they are. His zeal is as strong as theirs. Notice also he's bringing in evidence, facts that were well known. He's now going to explain uh, the amazing thing that caused the amazing change in him. Now, I don't know how many of you are science students. There's F equals MA. Force or the sum of the forces on an object is equal to the inertial mass of an object multiplied by the acceleration, the rate of change of direction or speed of an object. 
This, that, by the way, is also a spiritual rule. Because you have M, the inertial mass, travelling in a particular direction, going to Damascus to take people back to Jerusalem. It's got this, it's got this momentum going. In order to change the direction, the momentum of this inertial mass, you have to apply a significant force. How big a force is required? Let's find out. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? A stronger force probably would have killed him, by the way. But Saul needs help. Who was speaking to him in such a powerful and public way? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. And then Paul writes, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. This was not a quiet, personal dream. The Lord could have done it that way, couldn't he? But you have to think, now, God always does things for a reason. Why didn't he do it in a little private operation by himself? You got that? God always does things for a reason. This wasn't not a quiet personal dream. This was a public, physical and powerfully glorious confrontation. Dazzling light and a voice speaking and people could hear it and it was midday and so it was brighter light than the sun and it was a group of people. But only one person was the focus of attention. But Jesus does things for a reason. And Jesus clearly identifies himself to Saul as the one speaking. Clearly showing that he was the risen Messiah confronting Saul with a stern but a merciful rebuke. Why do you persecute me? Now, the fact that there were others present makes this a verifiable thing, doesn't it? You can't say this hit didn't happen, it didn't happen in a corner. It happened out in the open. Witnesses. How does Saul respond? Well, he responds with humility. What shall I do, Lord? He asked. And the Lord replies, get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light. It had blinded me. So the companions could clearly see the effect on Saul, couldn't they? He couldn't see anymore. So now what they thought they were going with, this hot-headed young guy, was suddenly a very different individual. Taken by the hand, they would have led him into Damascus. In chapter 9 it says he was blind for three days. Paul doesn't relate, tell them that in this situation because it's not necessarily relevant. He goes on to give more irrelevant information. Verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. 
And the interesting thing is what he tells us about Ananias. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. What's Paul doing? Once again, Paul is seeking to show his Jewish commitment in acknowledging Ananias so warmly. He was thoroughly Jewish. Ananias was thoroughly Jewish and Ananias was coming to do, uh, to, as, as Jesus' messenger to deal with Paul. So there's a whole lot of subtle messages happening all at the same time. Ananias stood beside me, says, uh, said Paul, and this is what he said. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Interesting words Paul uses here. That Ananias calls him brother Saul. And that Ananias was a highly respected Jew. He sends a subtle message of how Saul should actually be treated by his fellow Jews. And when you add Ananias' involvement with the miraculous restoration of Saul's eyesight, it gives Ananias a certain gravitas. That is, the miracle shows God's support of Ananias' attitude to Saul. Do you get that? See, only God can restore sight. And God was using Ananias to give Saul back his sight. So clearly, God's behind this, even though he was a well-respected Jew. And as Jesus promised Saul, there was a message waiting for him in Damascus, which Ananias is about to give him. Now, a little interesting thing here is Saul's got three days just to adjust to one fact. The Messiah has come, and it's Jesus. Jesus didn't tell him all the stuff he's going to do in that first vision. He said, when you get to uh, Damascus, I've got a message waiting for you. The Lord's very kind in taking Saul step by step. He doesn't plunge him with, him with a, an overload of info. He's going he's to, we'll see, I'll, no, I'll talk about it more in a minute. So what does Ananias say? Verse 14, then Ananias said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, number one, to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Three things. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptised, washing away your sins, your sins away, calling on his name. There's a lot packed in this, so let me just unpack it a bit for us. First of all, the God of our ancestors. What does that tell his hearers? The message that, that is being given to Saul here was from the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's where it comes from. This is not a new sect type stuff. This is founded back in history. So a sharp listener would pick up that little phrase, the God of our ancestors. Secondly, has chosen you. God's allowed to choose people. And he's chosen Saul for a number of reasons we've already considered. And to do three things. To know his will. That is to know what God, God's big plan is. 
And when you come to read the epistles, you can see how Paul has come to understand God's will. The, the mysteries that are hidden for ages and generations, but have now been made known to the apostles and prophets. He was one that God used to help us to understand God's will. And so that's the first step. Number two, to see the righteous one. The righteous one, as you see in Acts, is clearly the Messiah. Peter refers to, you know, you crucified the righteous one back in Acts chapter 3. So they would understand the righteous one as being the Messiah. And thirdly, to hear words from his mouth. So he was able to see and to hear. Then he was given a job to do. And what was he told to do? He's going to be a witness to testify to all people. Now the Jews listening might not have necessarily picked on that, but that all people doesn't just mean to Israel or to the Jews. What does all people mean? Everyone, all nations. But they haven't quite got picked up that yet. For you will be a witness to, uh, uh, for you will be a witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. So he's seen the Lord Jesus, and he's, he's heard words from his mouth. So he's now qualified to be able to to follow through and do those things. The ironic thing is, in the very process of him speaking to the Jews at that moment, he was doing exactly that, wasn't he? He was telling them what he had seen and heard. Precisely what he was doing as he was speaking. And then Ananias um, commanded action that demonstrated Paul's repentance. He needed a new beginning. Baptism was just a picture of washing away of the sins and calling on Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus did on the cross for us enables our forgiveness. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul has just given them, quite subtly, the gospel. Did you catch that? So in his testimony, he didn't miss out the, the, the important seed, the actual gospel, is in there. So this ends part A of his testimony. His witness to what he has seen and heard, how he was saved, how the Lord Jesus had mercy on him and commissioned him. Now he relates an event that actually occurs three years later. Because he's back in Jerusalem. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here in Jerusalem will not accept your testimony about me. He's back in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He hasn't renounced Judaism, obviously. He's still thoroughly Jewish and he's praying, still thoroughly Jewish. And this time the... uh, Lord speaks to him privately. And instead of saying, what shall I do, Lord? He says, no, I don't want to do that. He responds negatively to the command and uh, to to leave because he feels sure his fellow Jews would give him a sympathetic hearing. The Lord replied, these people know Lord, I replied, rather, these people know what I went through, uh, went 
excuse me, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in, believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. It's Paul's demonstrating his kinship with his, with his fellow Jews. He was completely with them and he felt sure that they would respond positively. But Jesus gave a hard command for him to do. It was not an option. Then the Lord said to me, go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Not to nearby Gentiles where there was Jewish presence, but far away where there was no Jewish influence. In fact, to all peoples, to the nations. Now, what did this communicate to the hearers? Because all of us has our buttons. You know, we have, you, you can press certain buttons with us and we can react. Well, they, Paul had just hit a button with them. The rejection by the Lord of the Jews is what's implied. They're not the only chosen ones. That the Messiah was sending Paul to those sinful, undeserving, godless Gentiles. And that they would accept Paul's testimony about Jesus. That they would be accepted into Jesus' kingdom without needing a Jewish heritage. That the Jews were no longer the privileged people with the sole access to God. That the temple was now irrelevant. The sacrificial system... Passe. How did the Jews react? Oh, that was so sweet. The crowd listened to Paul until he had said this word. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Well and truly, their button was hit. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. Now, the commander is the one who is in authority. He may have rude giving Paul permission to speak. What did he do that for? But he couldn't let such a source of trouble just go. He had to deal with the situation and get the facts. Commanders need facts. So he directed that Paul be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. You know what flogging involves? It's not just uh, just leather thongs. It's on the ends of the thongs you've got bits of metal and bits of bone uh, tied so that it rips skin off in the process of taking it back off. It was deadly. You could either kill the victim, which is not infrequent, certainly couldn't leave them permanently disabled. Now, I want you to note Paul's self-controlled response as, he, as they prepare him for flogging with the leather thongs around, stretching him out. It implies that he's actually willing to be flogged if they take no notice of his question, which is certainly possible, isn't it? As they were stretching him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? He could have pretended not to hear, couldn't he? 
But he didn't. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and, and reported, what are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and, and asked, tell me, are, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. And reading the commentaries about this, it was not uncommon at the time to be able to buy your citizenship. It was actually a cost of bribery to get the uh, get your name on citizenship, getting it through the Roman administration system so that you could be on the, the roll somewhere. You just need to fork out to the appropriate bodies. Paul replies, but I was born a citizen. Interesting point here. That actually made Paul the one superior to the tribune of the commander in Roman eyes. Birth trumps purchase. So here you have a superior about to be whipped by an inferior. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander still wanted to know the facts. He wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand in front of them. So this informal gathering wasn't a formal one. The commander couldn't just release Paul since he had responsibility to keep the peace in Jerusalem. The commander knew he had to take steps to resolve the situation. So they were gathered. Verse 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin, looking him right in the eye, and said, My brothers, claiming equality, he's not inferior to them, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And there's a statement. You can see the man, because he's a man of principle. He always keeps his principles, even in his, before Christ days, he was still a man of principle. And before God, at least he thought, before he was a Christian. He's very bold, treats them as brothers, and declares himself not guilty before God, let alone before them. Now he's not claiming to be sinless. But he is claiming that he always followed his conscience before God, even when his conscience needed a re-education. And once more we see a reaction. At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, and yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Is is, is Paul comfortable in his own skin? He's very, yeah, he's very comfortable. But the the question that arises in our heads is, why didn't? What about turning the other cheek? Now it's very interesting that this situation here exactly mirrors what happened to Jesus at his trial in the same place. You see, Jesus was slapped at his trial. Did Jesus turn the other cheek? No, he didn't. 
Because to do so would be to be to say you were right to do it. It would be saying here that it, as if he was in the wrong. So he, because what he had just done was he, you asked me, um, you were asking me questions. You shouldn't be asking me questions. You should be asking those who heard me questions. That's the ones who should be standing here speaking. Your, your procedure here is wrong, says Jesus. And he gets a whack on the mouth for it. And he turns to the one who did it and, you know, what did I do wrong? Important because if he didn't do that, he would be, it would look as though he accepted it as the wrong thing to do. And it wasn't. Do you see that? He clear con- Jesus had a clear conscience and Paul had a clear conscience in this situation too. He knew the law. You, you, you just broke it. And you're supposed to be running a trial, you know. So it's what he's just said. And that's why it wasn't wrong to, uh, for him to confront those who were in, they're in authority, but you're allowed to confront those who are in authority when they're in the wrong. You can point it out. They're still responsible for what they do and they will choose how they're going to respond, but it's not wrong to at least... He didn't do it very graciously, but he, um, as he is about to say. So those standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest. For it is written, and he quotes scripture, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Once again, showing how Jewish he is. Now, the commentaries provide a number of explanations for Paul's reply here. Um, it's not quite an apology, but it's most likely that since it was an informal meeting, Paul actually did not know that the chap was the high priest. He was just giving him an appropriate serve, probably that he hadn't, because he'd only just come back to Jerusalem after being away for so long, new high priest, he may not even been dressed in the appropriate gear, which he would have expected. So anyway, Paul didn't know. It's certainly, the whole tenor of Paul's words here, are, they, they rule out the possibility that he's being satirical or mocking. He's not doing that. He has respect for authority. So here he is standing in this situation. Now, in rhetorical debate, the rhetorical debate training of the time, it was important for the combatants to be able to clearly express the question of the debate. What you're going to be arguing about. And I think this is the most likely reasoning in Paul's mind as he takes in the situation before him. Where he's got the Sanhedrin, he's got the Roman governors, and um, they're, trying, he's, they're trying to pin something on Paul. He looks at the situation... He knows that the central pillar of his message is the resurrection of the Messiah. It is the resurrected Messiah that Paul is now serving. So as he weighs up the situation before him, he decides to clearly express the question of the debate. And I think he knows exactly what will happen. It's going to demonstrate to the Roman commander that he, Paul, is not the actual problem here. He is not the one causing the fuss. So let's read from verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. 
I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. I think um, Steve spoke to you about that and uh, when just recently with the confrontation with the Sadducees, didn't he? Do that? Yep. Did he go through Isaiah 53 by any chance? I was preaching the same sermon and we discussed it together. And in Isaiah 53, um, you read it for yourself, it's actually a storyline. And the thing about it is the resurrection comes out clearly. Because it runs, you know, he was born, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a red dry ground. They took him, uh, treated him really badly. Um, then, you know, his life was taken from him. Uh-oh, he's just dead. Um, they made his grave with the wicked, well and truly dead. Um, uh, after he's made an, self an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is the one with, this is the, who the story is about. But I thought he was dead. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He's, how can the will of the Lord prosper in a dead man's hand? You look at Isaiah 53 and you'll see the resurrection clearly it told. And it's the, 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 the resurrection of the Messiah. The resurrection is a reality. That's our hope. And so Paul puts it out there. Because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. We have a great hope, don't we? And it's a certain one. Foretold 700 years beforehand, Jesus has fulfilled that to the letter. And he's promised us he's going to give us eternal life. So when he had said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Not surprising, considering our recent meditation. And the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. So what happened? Well, there was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. Surprise, surprise. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent. This is while Paul's watching, by the way. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and grab him, take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. What was revealed about the religious leaders? They were the problem. The Pharisees didn't exactly come down on Paul's side, but, yes, a messy situation... Beautifully messy, isn't it? I love it. Lovely. So was Jesus' statement to Paul, which is in, in, that he uh, had in a trance in Jerusalem, correct? You know, when Jesus said to him, they're not going to accept? It was spot on, as usual. So, who is in control in this messy situation? You notice Paul rescued just in time every time? Who's in control? The Lord is. Isn't that encouraging to know? If he hadn't rescued him then, we wouldn't have our scriptures. You realise that? From the written, God knows exactly what he's doing. The Lord Jesus is in control of this situation. 
Uh, the message is still going to get out, even to a hostile audience. It hit the Lord Jesus in control. Verse 11, our final verse, and an important one. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. Isn't that nice? He stood near him. That's a just comforting in itself, and said, Take courage. Lord had done this before. You remember when he'd done it before? Encouraging him? What town was he in when they came and gave him courage? Was it Athens? Was it Corinth? Corinth. He said, I've got many people. You know, keep going, Paul. See, Paul needed encouragement too. He, got, he, he met Jesus on the road but the Lord's continuing to minister kindly, lovingly and graciously to his servant, Paul. Take courage. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The test, word, the testifying there, is, the word is a, a serious testi- testifying. It's under oath type testifying. That's why some versions have uh, just testifying and others have to the facts. But it's a very serious um, presentation of a testimony of witnessing, standing in the witness box. As you have witnessed, testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you also must testify in Rome. The Lord is in control. Now, do you think the Lord was happy with what Paul communicated in Jerusalem as you have testified here what you did there what you're going to do here isn't that right not telling them off of what happened here he did a perfect job here and he's going to do the same in Rome so that gives uh, Paul I think oh right okay that's giving him where are we going here what's God going to be doing because it's going to be rough for a while is very kind and personal and encouraging him and strengthening him in his confidence and conviction in himself his faith that the Lord Jesus is in fact in control in this messy world he's got the facts see faith is based on facts the commander he was looking for facts the Lord Jesus risen is a fact. The fulfilment of scripture is a fact. That's how we know. Every time we get up each morning, we have the living God. We have, we're going to rise again from the dead. We've got eternal life. We've been forgiven because of God's great mercy to us. They're all facts. And they're not done in a corner. And that's why once the Lord's very careful the way he does stuff. Some things are going to be very public, including Jesus' crucifixion and the tearing of the temple, the curtain temple from top to bottom. All those facts can contribute to strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus and to, for us to hang on to him and onto his word. So let me pray for us. I'm just going to pray um, Paul's prayer in...
Look uh, in Romans 15. Oh, our God, may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.